This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. One thing we are seeing for sure is the pressure on employers. When asked about three-fourths of Gen Z around the world said that availability of mental health resources is one of the key things that is important when they're selecting an employer, whether that be access to therapy, mental well-being programs. Um, And this is different than it has been for other generations. That's Erica Koh. She's a McKinsey partner and co-leads the McKinsey Health Institute. She joins me and founding president of the Child Mind Institute, Dr. Harold Koplowitz, to discuss teenage mental health and the impact it has on society. After Maggie Smith, author of the memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, shares how grief can be transformative from our Author Talk series. Harold, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. And Erica, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Excited for the conversation. So let's start with some context. We hear much, at least in U.S. popular media, about the crisis of mental health among teenagers. Harold, would you give us a sense of what you're seeing in your work leading the Child Mind Institute? The youth mental health crisis is very real, but it's also a global crisis. Worldwide, at least 200 million children and teenagers struggle with a mental health disorder. And in the States, it's 17.1 million young people have a mental health disorder by the age of 18. Girls in particular are really in crisis. So according to the CDC report from earlier this year, almost 60% of U.S. teen girls said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. And one in three seriously had contemplated attempting suicide in 2021. And that's almost a 60% increase from the decade before. And how much of this diminished mental health do you attribute to the pandemic? Well, the most chilling fact is that the numbers of teen suicides jumped from 2007 to 2018, and that's before the pandemic. And I think the only thing we can see that changed in society at that time was really social media. And so I think we have to take very seriously, for instance, Surgeon Vivek Murthy's advisory on the fact that social media could be very dangerous for certain teenagers and particularly ones who have a mental health disorder. Erica, you and some colleagues at the McKinsey Health Institute recently authored an article on the impact of social media on Gen Z in particular. Many parents, to Harold's point, myself included, fret about social media usage among their kids, FOMO, body image, other challenges. What did you learn conducting this research? It was really eye-opening. Initially, it was a global survey across 26 countries with over 40,000 respondents, where we were able to get a close look at Gen Z perceptions and behaviors, but also how it compares to other generations um, to try to really get some insights in terms of just their reported perceived mental health, um, reporting much poorer mental health than any other generation three times higher reporting of poor mental health than baby boomers. When it comes to social media and tech, this is not going away. So a lot of what we were trying to get at with the survey is how are people using social media and tech? What is leading to the positive impacts versus the negative impacts? About a third of respondents reported um, positive impact on their body image, but then you know almost as many reported a negative impact on body image. Interestingly, 
those in Generation Z were much more likely to have negative effects of just interacting with social media and to be interacting in very passive ways versus active compared to older generations. Erica, just say a bit more about passive versus active and what that means. Yes, there have been a number of studies that have shown that scrolling through Instagram posts, seeing all the experiences others are having could be linked to declines in subjective well-being over time. If you're using social media in active ways, it might be not only DMing people, but using it for, you know, professional connections or for um, for social circles and for ways of interacting and that way playing games online with friends um, versus the passive where you're you're seeing how many likes something can get you know giving a thumbs up to like something or not that in a sense is still in the passive bucket because you're not actually interacting with others in a different way mm-hmm. and I believe your research covered members of Gen Z who are 18 and above Is that correct? That is correct. And younger generations, you know, people are getting their first phones and accessing social media at much younger ages. So we looked at problematic internet usage throughout the pandemic, which was defined as internet use habits that negatively impact quality of life. So our surveys suggested that screen usage went up and stayed up in the first years of the pandemic. And between the baseline assessment in 2019 and our survey in May 2020, the majority of kids went from spending less than an hour a day gaming to spending one to three hours or more. And pre-pandemic, less than 20% of kids used streaming video for four hours a day or more. And But by May of 2020, remember that we were shut down by then, uh, we found that that number had doubled, and with 40% spending four or more hours a day watching video online. That is such a significant jump. Anything else to say about the research on tech usage more generally among teens? There was, first of all, a clear increase in social media use by both kids and adults during the pandemic. And following the pandemic, if your parents were overusing the internet, you were more likely to have a kid who was overusing it. And in February of 2021, we found that these shifts persisted. And we know that the more hours your parents spend on the internet has a definite effect on kids. As many as 50% of adults were watching digital media for four or more hours a day, along with 40% of their children. And that is a very worrisome amount of time because the more hours you spend on the internet or social media, the less hours you sleep. There's more sleep deprivation, there's less exercise, and there's less real live interactions. And we certainly need all three of those for healthy brain development. And while if you're more than 24, you're no longer considered an adolescent, but adolescents and children, these are crucial periods in their brain development. So the internet overusage or problematic internet usage can have a a very severe effect presently and ongoing. Erica, did you want to add anything there? Um, When we did our global survey across the 26 countries, close to three quarters of Gen Z respondents felt they spent too much time online. So often there's um, there's an acknowledgement there that that somehow it's probably not the best thing, but it's hard for them to to get away from it. I'd also suggest that there's an addictive quality here that has a different effect on an adult brain than on a teenager's brain. And so it's widely known that the algorithms are built to keep people on the platforms as long as possible. 
Therefore, sometimes it's directly harmful, but the content based on very user-specific data, for instance, someone worried about their weight, someone thinking about exercise or dieting, this can really be a very divisive content for a teenage girl or for a teenage boy in a way that is particularly different and the adolescent brain is much more vulnerable. What are some of the other significant factors that are contributing to challenging mental health among today's teens? Well, I would tell you that COVID took a bad situation and exponentially made it worse. Mm-hmm. So let's just think about, you know, you're worrying about your grandparents dying and you, you lose a caregiver. So the trauma of this, at least to recover from it, is going to take over a decade. If 30% of the 17 million kids who have a mental health disorder get treatment, that means that there's always about 70% for multiple reasons have not getting any intervention. And those are the kids who have been, I think, the most affected by COVID, by the loss of two years of school or of social interactions, of you know worry about the future, worry about their health, worry about their parents' health. You know, you miss two years of school. And somehow we believe that the educational system is so good that they're just going to recover from that. I, I, I don't understand how a, th- a third grader who's mastering reading and doesn't get back to school until fifth grade can catch up without some real remediation. That's pretty obvious. I think it becomes less obvious, but more chilling to think what happens to those anxious kids uh, who were worried beforehand and now have avoided school because they had to, and now they have to go back or they have to get back into social interactions. So I think the rates of depression and anxiety and loneliness are going to continue to rise unless we start thinking about a, a whole different way of approaching this problem. To add on that, Harold, I think there's so much value in early intervention and really focusing on prevention and promotion. And it's useful to remember that not only is there value in addressing the immediate need right now among youth, but this can change the trajectory of somebody's life. And it's not just a mental um, disorder or mental burden that it may relieve, but there's so much kind of co-occurrence of then chronic health conditions on the physical health side that occur. And you can you know, change all of that if you really can teach some of these skills early on and teach others that are around youth the right early identification. And along the lines of what you're describing, really having some sense of increased mental health literacy, what's normal, what isn't, and how to really pick up on signs when things are needed, then so much disease burden can be avoided later in life. And we have to also help parents become smarter. You know, most parents know that you're supposed to walk at one and have your first words by two and be toilet trained by three. But I'm not sure we teach parents when your kids are supposed to interact with friends, when they're supposed to be able to sleep through the night, what are baseline kinds of appetite and energy levels. And I think that kind of information and education could be very, very helpful, almost kind of like a mosquito net to malaria. You know, what what are the prevention models we should be looking at? Parents talk a lot about safety and about striking that balance between safety and independence. And in our memory, at least, our generation had much more freedom than many kids today. We were mobile and out in the world Any counsel for parents on agency and teen mental health? You know, it doesn't take much for a parent to be worried or actually feel guilty about something their kid is experiencing. And it is our need to protect them that we have to fight 
to give them some freedom, right? To be able to recognize when they're able to walk to school on their own or when they can ride on a bus with the understanding that clearly safety guardrails have to be up. And I think that COVID made that worse for parents also. And so we have to retrain ourselves to say, you know, that's in the rear view mirror. And how do we, as parents, put our cell phones away, have cell-free time, you know, and have conversations at dinner that last at least 10 minutes or 15 minutes? And how do we start getting our kids back outside so that they're playing sports, that they can stay outside with their friends for a certain amount of time with some monitoring, depending on their age, but with some understanding that they need that freedom. They need to experiment and experience, by the way, distress and failure for them to become more resilient and healthy and independent. Early on, too, there is a lot of strong influence from peer to peer. How do we harness that? Some of these recent convenings and forums where we've been engaging folks, one of the things that we hear kind of really come out clearly is they want to be able to help their friends, They want, but they want to feel equipped. How do we enable them in, in really investing in the peer support model for youth and equipping them with that agency, I think, could unlock a lot of potential? We were talking about what's changed. I think peer support is one of them. Young people who do go to therapy or young people who do take medicine or young people who have difficulty are not as quiet about it. They share that information. And when they share the conflict or the struggle, and then they're able to use their knowledge of how they succeeded over the struggle, that can be very, very helpful to another teenager. Remarkably so. Not that they become therapists for them, but they become part of the village that's going to really help them through this to say, look, I made it through the tunnel. You can do it too. We've been investing uh, at the Child Mind Institute for many years now, since 2017, in public awareness campaigns. And most recently, we did You Got This. And I'm amazed at the power, particularly of athletes like Kevin Love or Brandon Marshall. You know, they're the epitome of physical health when they talk about their anxiety or their depression. And you hear the response from uh, teenage boys that if Brandon had it or Kevin in particular, and he's still actively, you know, in the world of sports, uh, how I can get through this also. Harold, you mentioned gender as a strong factor in susceptibility to mental health issues. How does that come into play in terms of treatment? Girls are much more available. They talk about things. They seem to have less shame and less embarrassment about the struggle. Frankly, we've always had an easier time of getting female actors and uh, athletes to participate in these programs. So in May 1st, 2017, it was Emma Stone, you know, talking about her anxiety. You know, girls who see a creative, um, impressive person who on screen looks completely carefree and that says in their real life they struggled and that therapy really worked and it changed their lives, uh, makes it a lot easier. And, and I think one of the reasons we see higher numbers clearly of um, anxiety and depression post-puberty in girls is that there is a, a difference hormonally. Uh, and we see many more boys who are disruptive um, in pre-pubertal times. But we also know that girls wait a shorter period of time to get help. When they're in pain, they are more likely to tell a friend and they're more likely to uh, be seeking help. And boys uh, tend to be, I think, more vulnerable to looking weak. And that's one of the reasons I think 
athletes have so much more power as influencers than uh, we would have ever realized in the mental health sphere. Are there geographic or cultural variations, even within the U.S., class variations in the way that treatment affects these kids and approaches affect these kids? Well, I always think of SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You know, in the 1980s, Prozac was released. And it turned out that it was good for obsessive compulsive disorder, and it may have been good for uh, their anxiety disorders. And it starts getting released at a rate that's quite amazing. And remarkably, across the country, suicide rates dropped in teenagers. Uh, But it turns out that African Americans really hesitate on any kind of treatment that even smells like research or experimental. And so if you looked at zip codes, it was very clear that in areas where pediatricians were giving these meds, um, that there was lower suicide attempts and completion in those zip codes. And then there was a backlash. You know, there were deaths that people were attributing, you know, uh, violent events, and they couldn't prove it. In fact, several times when they did autopsies on these kids who had been prescribed SSRIs and then had a shooting or were involved in a a violent event, that they got the prescription for the SSRI, but they never took the medicine. Do you mean? So it's, it's, it's hard to blame the medicine. Nevertheless, there were hearings in Congress and a black box was put on all SSRIs that it could cause suicidality. I don't know what that really means. It was a new word. It could mean slapping yourself in the face. It could mean maybe some thoughts, but it was a new term. And inevitably, pediatricians stopped using SSRIs. And the suicide rate went back up, and you could follow it in zip codes. But the one rate that stayed the same, didn't go up, it didn't go down, were in neighborhoods of African-Americans. So quite clearly, we need to think about what kind of education, what kind of awareness campaigns we're doing for uh, the African-American community, for the Hispanic-American community, about how we can get uh, a better awareness and decrease the stigma. And you know, there are other problems with the workforce. It's very hard to get a male therapist of color. There are very few. Uh, we started a program recently called the Youth Mental Health Academy. We just did a pilot, but we're going to find 2,500 uh, really bright high school kids in 11th or 12th grade in California who are um, interested in mental health. And we're going to give them paid internships and hands-on experience with uh, research, with clinical care, with the idea that we could expose them to the possibility of becoming a child mental health professional in the future. Mental health is so much more in the discourse publicly than it was, for example, when I was growing up. You know, when I was a kid, we wouldn't tell someone if you had a reading tutor. And today, people are much more open and willing to talk about it. So I'm optimistic. I do think COVID, while awful, there there were two silver linings. One is that everyone started to be concerned about their children's mental health, even if they didn't have a disorder. So it became part of the national conversation. And the second is the concept of telehealth, which I don't think would have had this jump in popularity and usage if, if it hadn't been forced on us because of the isolation we had. Erica, you've done a lot of work on stigma. Have you seen any demonstrable change in the workplace, for example? One thing we are seeing for sure is the pressure on employers. 
when asked about three-fourths of Gen Z around the world, said that availability of mental health resources is one of the key things that is important when they're selecting an employer, whether that be access to therapy, mental well-being programs. Um, And this is different than it has been for other generations. Just think about the fact that mental health disorders uh, do not have parity in insurance with physical disorders. And one of the reasons for that is that employees don't demand it, right? There's so much, there was so much stigma. Why do you want, you know, coverage for depression? And the fact that new employees are actually questioning what the mental health coverage is only means that sooner, hopefully than later, we're going to see more of this parity. I mean, I, I, I think you need a moment though, to think about the fact that more kids die from suicide than the 13 major physical disorders. You know, I, I think childhood cancer is, is serious and we should support it, but it pales in comparison to the scale of the mental health crisis. As we're looking ahead to this next-gen workforce, any particular challenges you see as today's teens begin to grow into professionals and enter the job market? So, uh, you know, if, I think it goes back to the idea of how are we going to develop kind of like a mental health system? We have an educational system. Do we, do we have a system that's going to treat mental health symptoms and mental health disorders with the same kind of respect, the same kind of scientific rigor, uh, the same kind of funding that we take care of, you know, the advances we've made in cancer or in diabetes or in seizure disorders. Because if we don't invest, we, we could just tell you right now that kids who have a mental health disorder are more likely to have academic failure, are more likely to drop out of school, are more likely to use illicit drugs, are more likely to have interactions with the juvenile justice system, and are more likely to have physical complaints later on and utilize more uh, physical health services than the kids who don't have these disorders. And if the numbers have just jumped in the numbers of kids who are more symptomatic than before, I think it it necessitates a reevaluation of how we're going to take care of these kids and try in some ways to do prevention, but more importantly, when the symptoms strike, to do early intervention. I would 100% agree. These things only go so far if services are inaccessible at the end of the day. And so much of it has to be around really um, evolving the mental health system as part of the overall health system and getting rid of the lack of parity that continues to exist really, really will be at the root of a lot of improvement. Anything else to add that we didn't get to? I think that there's an interesting question around just the digital mental health solutions in general. Um, one thing that um, obviously there's been a proliferation, so sometimes it's hard to figure out what is helpful and what isn't, and as a um, parent, where to engage and where not to engage. One thing that stood out in our survey is a, a very interesting kind of contradiction is that um, about 22% of Gen Z respondents reported using digital mental health tools, which really, you know, one in five, that's not as many, if you look at the number that are saying that they're having kind of mental health distress and mental health needs, for those that did use them, 80% reported them as effective, but often they didn't stick with them. And so I think there's a real question of how to um, rethink how we engage Gen Z users to really utilize the power of digital innovation. And to continue what Eric's saying, it really requires some robust evaluation. We have a, a grant to look at the next generation of digital therapeutics. It sounds great, but 
does everything really work? And, you know, evidence-based psychotherapy or psychopharmacology, particularly with young people, is very challenging. And to pretend that we can just switch a program and say, now we're going to do it on a screen, I think really uh, minimizes the fact that we have to have different techniques. And I think that's going to require study. You know, I, I could tell you anecdotally that the Chalman Institute still does around 50% of our sessions online, but we find that 30 minutes is about the maximum we can keep uh, a young person on a screen versus 45 minutes or an hour when we would see them in person. And so that means that you've got to pace yourself differently. You might need a few more sessions. You might need to engage parents in between. You might have to use coaches or uh, emails that you have to send out to keep them engaged in a way that you might not if you were doing it you know, the old-fashioned way in person. But I think the fact that 20% of them are using it, but 80% are finding it helpful, means that we're on the road. We just need to make sure that path is smoother and, and a more effective highway. So a little bit back to the passive versus active. If we know that the Gen Z respondents were the least likely of all age cohorts to report actually actively posting and instead to report higher hours of just passive social media use of consuming and not um, interacting, you know, imagine some pop up on your phone that that gives you a reminder of how much your time has been passive versus active. What are ways to enable youth with really understanding what's going to be positive versus negative the same way we teach what are healthy foods and, you know, what should you be doing for physical exercise to equip them with more information to make smart decisions as well. That's a terrific idea because it's using data and coming up with an intervention. You know, when I was in training, patients smoked, the doctor smoked, and the fact that people don't smoke in schools, they don't smoke in in buildings, they don't smoke in an airplane, they don't even smoke in the airport. So if you could change that behavior, I'm pretty confident that if you take the data, for instance, that Erica was just talking about, and remember, it's much easier to teach someone who has a young brain, 24 or younger, new habits than old people. I know within Utah, there's been great uptake of the Safe UT app, which the Huntsman Institute has been behind of really having a resource for youth to be able to reach out to and get information they need if they have a friend that they're worried about. And the fact that you have different groups and new family foundations making very big investments in mental health because it's real, it's common, it's treatable, and it does affect, you know, everyone who's listening to this podcast, I assure you knows and loves one of these kids. Because if you're lucky enough that it's not your children, then it's your niece or nephew, or it's your best friend's child, or it's your child's best friend. So when it reaches these numbers, it's time to either, you know, say we have to step back and figure out what's going on, or, you know, we just continue to deny it. And the denial could cost us tremendous amount of future costs, whether it's deaths or suicide attempts or lack of productivity of a large percentage of our population. Erica and Harold, thanks so much, both of you, for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm so delighted you're highlighting this topic. Yes, many thanks. Mental health is top of mind for so many of us, including Maggie Smith, author of the memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. This book is really written out of the upheaval of my divorce, but also other big life changes. I think one of the unkind stories we tend to tell ourselves is, um, well, okay, what is my life now? Life is over as I know it. How did I get here? Because the answer to that really needs to be, okay, this is how I got here, but also now where am I going? And so making peace with the past 
I think helps us live more with the possibilities in the present and the possibilities of the future. There's a, a sort of narrative of we need to forgive people who we perceive having done us wrong. And I agree with that. And yet, I think there is a difference between really forgiving someone and just being able to get to a place of greater peace and acceptance with what has happened. And part of that, I think, is also owning your own stuff, <laughs> by which I mean um, all relationships, all systems, whether it's a working relationship or a family or a marriage, all of those relationships and systems are co-created, right? We also have to own our part in our own decision-making and creating that environment and also have to forgive ourselves, I think. Accept that what's done is done and, and how can we learn from it and then move forward with some greater wisdom to maybe make some different decisions today, tomorrow, the next day. Now what? I have to sort of gather myself, stand in my own power, remember who I am, reach out to my community. And I think those are all things we have to do. And so my thinking is that change is the only constant and we're all human beings and we're all dealing with that in various ways in our lives. I actually think all literature is sort of self-help and instructive in one way, shape or form in that, at least for me, books make me feel less alone. Even if the experience of the writer is not my experience, when I read it and I feel let into their lives, and I see how they coped, I see how they grieved, what their experience was like, I feel seen. Spoiler alert, I did not actually exit this book having all of the answers. That's actually not anything that any of us really ever gets access to. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.